You're listening to How to Build a Better World, the Fifth Estates podcast where we call on the experts and leaders to explore the big ecological, social and financial problems of our time. Hi, I'm Tina Perinotto, editor of the Fifth Estate, and this is How to Build a Better World. And today I'm joined by Matt Nelson, who's with EY and has some fantastic ideas. We had a bit of a briefing session ahead of this podcast and he's really got some great insights and actually some wake-up calls for the industry and climate challenge and investors and that whole world of high-level investment community that's actually probably going to decide our future, I reckon. That's my personal opinion. So, Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here, Tina, and uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. I wonder whether we could start by um, you telling us what you basically do in your job at EY? Yeah, um, so I'm the EY Oceania Chief Sustainability Officer at EY, but I've also uh, been involved in our climate change and sustainability services delivery team, helping clients with uh, transition in relation to climate change, but also more broadly ESG strategy for next year will be 20 years, Tina, at EY. I'm all part of that climate change and sustainability services team, so a long time. Um, been through a lot of ups and downs in the whole ESG and climate space. But my role now is really about looking at how EY as a business across the board actually will, first of all, support our clients in the way that we create the change that's necessary, but also about working with our own people who have real engagement with the topic of ESG and climate change, and then also working with our communities in how we can support them in in the necessary transitions that are going to need to occur. That's fantastic. So maybe you could start by giving us a bit of an idea of who your clients are. Yeah, so most of the clients for EY are generally the larger businesses. So, you know, for EY, we tend to focus more on, say, the ASX 200 type businesses locally um, and the, the New Zealand 50 or globally, the, the Fortune companies that we we all are household names for everybody in that uh, that are your listeners, Tina. You know, our clients... Tease um, us a bit and t- tell us who they are. Give us a few of those names. <laughs> yeah, so um, so in terms of talking about clients that we work with, which are very public because we provide, say, assurance services for companies like BHP, Santos, Origin Energy, previously Woodside, these types of clients, Rio Tinto, very much in the resources sector, but also in the property sector, companies like um, Mervac or Stockland or these types of organisations... And then as far and broad as fast-moving consumer goods or even CSL is a client of, of ours that we've done work for over the journey. So um, it is a very broad spectrum for me personally. I've also done work across Asia Pacific and into the Middle East as well as for, for EMEA and, and the Americas. So had a bit of a broad uh, footprint. And, and EY is a very large organisation, obviously, with operations in pretty much any country you can think of, Tina. Um, and, you know, we have over 300,000 people at EY. So the footprint that we have and the reach into organisations at sort of the larger scale businesses across the globe um, is is quite big for, for an organisation like ours. Mm, that's pretty impressive. So um, let's let's also, you know, perhaps now delve into um, where are we now in the in the fight for the climate, and you know what what are the big levers that you can see operating to um, maintain uh, the kind of warming that would give us a reasonable um, survival rate of one point five degrees uh, Celsius. Yeah. So it's it's a good question, um, and as I mentioned, I've been at this game for for close to twenty years now within EY, and I think uh, um, I joke with my leadership, Tina, that every year that I've been here at EY, I've told my leadership when I've asked for further investment that we're at a tipping point and things are about to happen. And I think <laughs> I would say twenty twenty was probably the year that I actually thought it was true. Um, so, you know, in 2020, I think we, we did hit a point in which there was a significant momentum shift Mm. coming out of 2019, just before COVID hit, we saw started to see some real traction globally and even traction locally, that this is a topic that needed to, to get focus. And even despite COVID that momentum has continued. So, you know, we are, I think in the journey of the process, I think we're, you know, what are the stages of of grief, Tina? You know, like there's a point. Of, the acceptance is probably the point at which we're we're at. I think there is globally now acceptance between governments and 
businesses as well as the community more broadly, there's now an acceptance that we have a problem that needs to be resolved. Um, the next step in the journey for us is to start to mobilize around the actions that will enable us to respond to that challenge. Um, and I think coming back to your point about where are the investor communities at, I think there is quite a lot of appetite for the investor community to jump on board that um, that process of getting on board and taking action. Uh, but it's nowhere near at the pace that we need at the moment in order to, um, I guess, minimise the impacts of, of the cha challenge that's facing us. Because mm, one of the issues that we talked about in our briefing session was, you know, I, I sort of get this idea that, you know, well, I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, the, the demand for renewable energy is not going to go away. It's just going to increase. And I know that there was um, some research came out the other day that said there's still unbelievably 9% of people are climate deniers. <laughs> um, and, you know, they still exist, I suppose, but they're in the minority. Um, but, you know, we've got some undeniable trends underway. And my feeling about investors is that they, you know, want to bet on a sure thing. I can't think of anything surer than wanting to save the planet and come up with renewable energy and you're telling me that it's actually not that easy no it's very it's very true and it's a good point that you raise so um uh this is where i might i might actually use the financial services sector as a bit of an example here tina because you would think um we often get that com comment about sustainable finance and the growth of sustainable finance so we have seen significant growth admittedly coming off a relatively low base in the uh volumes of capital that are kind of flowing into the sustainable finance area. And people start saying, well, are we starting to see a benefit in terms of capital, like a, a reduction in capital costs associated with money that's been put to um, solutions, so either renewables or, or, or other solutions that fix the climate problem, or actually penalties being applied to capital that's been deployed for, say, fossil fuel-based industries or, or, the, or the like. And in reality, we haven't seen much of that. We see this scenario where people are very keen to put money into, say, green bonds or sustainable finance. But as soon as you apply some sort of discount rate for the uh, for the returns associated with that, suddenly the, the demand dries up. And so what we see there is a, a bit of a weird scenario where kind of everyone knows that the only trajectory for us is to make the transition that's necessary, yet at the same time, the capital isn't necessarily rewarding things that are part of that solution, sort of saying that there will be a premium return for, for assets that are focused on this. The reason for that is because investor um, assessments and business cases are very, very specific in relation to their returns. So you might say, well, yes, this is generally going to help the environment, but we don't really know what government policy is going to specifically reward or detract from. And governments have had a really bad track record, Tina, of kind of picking winners within the the transition process. And this is something that, you know, I often talk about is what would actually be better is governments very specifically looking at setting the goalposts. Here's where we wish to achieve. This is what the overarching goals. And then actually allowing the market to get on and deploy the capital in the most efficient way that have us achieve that. As opposed to... Sorry, go Yeah, ahead. sorry. No, 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 go, go ahead. I was just going to say, as opposed to this concept of saying... I'm going to pick a winner. So therefore, you know, if we if we look, for example, at in Australia as a good example where we tried to put in a, an economy-wide uh, carbon price range of different political reasons as to why that didn't last very long, Tina. But we actually had a renewable energy certificate scheme that was in place for a long period of time. Both those scenarios resulted in a form of carbon price being implemented into the power sector. But the government had kind of went renewables is the one that we're going to really focus on here and we're going to put all our eggs in the basket of achieving outcomes through renewables rather than this broad scheme. And as a result, some would argue that the price paid on carbon as a result of the REC scheme was actually higher than it would have been for the carbon price, the CPRS that was being implemented. Now, that's very interesting. So what was would have, what could have been an alternative to picking carbon and, and renewables as a, a winner? Well, economic theory, and I'm I'm no ec economist, Tina, but I know enough to be dangerous and and, and make some. I think they're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. <laughs> I don't think boat. all economists don't seem to. Yeah. I mean, God, have they failed us in recent? Yeah, particularly times. engineers. I I mean, I am an actually an engineer, so you'll hear me talk about economies and accounting and all sorts of different things. But you know, um, it's never stopped me before, Tina. So okay, <laughs> let me have a crack at that. But ultimately, the broader the scheme, 
the more options there are to identify for the market, the most efficient ways of reducing emissions. So there are so many different ways that you can reduce emissions in our economy. You can implement renewable energy, of course. You can plant forests. You can shoot camels in the outback. There was a, um, an emission reduction pro uh, methodology that was actually about doing that. So you can reduce emissions in the agricultural sector. You can... Um, you can find ways to get more efficiency in the use of electricity. There are so many different ways that you can reduce emissions. So therefore, the most efficient scheme, once you set a boundary for, um, for the goals that you're seeking to achieve, i.e. your cap, um, the more industries, the more options that companies have to find the cheapest way to reduce emissions, the more efficient economically it's going to be. So... If you think about the Renewable Energy Certificate Scheme, it was very focused on the power sector specifically. Now, admittedly, in Australia, that is a significant proportion of our emissions, but not 100% of our emissions. Okay. So the more, the broader, which is also why if we actually had an emissions trading scheme that covered the entire world and every single industry, that would be the easiest, most economically efficient way to find the cheapest ways to reduce emissions. Um, and that's the theory behind this concept that I, that I talk about. Now, I, I understand the political challenges, trying to build something globally that works between all sorts of different jurisdictions is, you know, just not possible, but it doesn't mean that we can't still apply that theory to the most economically efficient options that we've got for ourselves. In Australia, in our own country, we could do that. That's interesting. So this is your passion, is that your overarching, I suppose, the architecture you've come up with as an engineer <laughs> to kind of construct a way that would... Um, get us where we need to be the fastest. Yeah, um, you know, I think we all acknowledge, again, I'm probably a bit of a prag pragmatic um, technical economist, Tina, in that I also recognise that markets are never perfect and markets aren't perfect at the moment. They're not delivering the outcomes that we subsequently need because I think there is a real challenge with this concept of risk and what level of risk needs to happen in order to create the transition. Um, but... But yeah, I do think that markets are markets are certainly more efficient in determining the best uses of capital to get returns than governments are. And yeah, we hear that a lot from from you know the, the economists of the world, and it's interesting to hear the you know a proper reasoning of why that might happen. Yeah, look, um, it's yeah. just really. I mean, it's a bit like this whole argument in markets where it talks about you know your passive um, investors and your active investors, and this whole view that the crowd is much more efficient than the individual in, in working out what's going to work and what's not going to work. And, you know, I, I kind of have a bit of a personal connection to this concept of the wisdom of crowds. There's a great, there's a great little book. If you want everyone to read it, Tina, about the wisdom of crowds, but, but I do what's, think. What's, in, it, what's it called? We like these little. Called the wisdom of the wisdom of crowds. Oh, I have heard of that phrase. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, you know, I think that's very much the case that markets are pretty good at identifying what is if going to be, you know, financial. I'm going to use the word financial rather than economic in this circumstance. But, you know, investors are pretty good at saying, how do I actually make money off something? And I'm going to put my money into those things that, that are going to deliver things. Yeah. One thing I would say, though, is, you know, mm. putting that, that might sort of say that market's going to solve everything, but there is significant role for government to play in this whole overarching um pathway because markets aren't perfect and so there are certain circumstances where governments need to create the levers and incentives which is one of the problems why we're in the in this climate change issue in the first place is because of these externalities but but you know if we think about some of the levers that are necessary for government in our own market and preparing ourselves for the transition as well because it's it's also not just about our domestic market here in Australia Tina or, or even in New Zealand it's also about what this looks like for our exports. So mm. EY did some uh, research recently and, and over 60% of Australia's existing value in exports is in emissions-intensive industries. Mm. And they are to, um, we export these products to countries that have already committed to net zero. So even if we do nothing in our own domestic policy, we are subsequently exposed to the transition of of uh to net zero because our trading partners have made those those transitions and it will impact and we'll be punished the for the yeah, products we'll, we'll, correct yeah. so we could have a tax and what do they call it a border cross-border 
carbon correct, tax. Correct. We could mm. find a cross-border tax or if Japan just turn around and say we're going to be net zero by 2050, they won't be buying our LNG anymore um, or India mm. won't be buying our coal anymore. And so this is what, what will happen over the journey. So the concept of what we need to do here in Australia is a recognition that these things are going to happen and we need infrastructure in place that enables businesses to thrive and that's where the role of government can come in. Okay, so can you explain a little bit? Yeah, sorry. Setting the boundaries. Right. Um, what does that look levels. like? Yeah. Yep. So mm. that's that's like what it was our target. But at the same time, also in the appropriate ways, encouraging investments that will enable things to happen. So those sorts of things can, now this might sound a little bit contradictory because I've sort of said not picking winners, but, you know, there are things that we need in relation to um, an upgraded grid across Australia. I think everyone would acknowledge that we need a better grid in Australia and that we've under invested in that over a journey. And as a result, it's going to make the transition for us locally much more difficult unless we put significant investment into it. Um, mm. So it, it makes rolling out of electric vehicle infrastructure more difficult. It makes um, decentralised power more difficult. It makes switching from of for um, to electrification in households more difficult if we don't have an appropriate transmission and distribution grid to enable us to happen. And that's where government needs to step in because it's kind of this shared resource, a bit like the MBN. The other one is what are the export markets going to be for Australia? And investors can give us the indicators of that based on what they see as where they wish to put their capital. But government, again, will have a part to play in major infrastructure that will support that. So is hydrogen the winner? Is it green ammonia? Is it is it something else that will enable us to actually take that resource of renewable energy and sell it to the world? And that's what we're going to need to replace the existing export markets that we currently have. Mm. I'm kind of interested to hear more about what the government's role can be and what kind of, I mean, you've, you've, um, you've talked about export markets. What can it do about that? Can it sort of say, you know, trade here or not there or what, what can it really do in, in practical means? Yeah, so what we've typically found, and you see this, say, for example, in the LNG space, Tina, where we've got a very obviously a very big export market in LNG as well as a relatively large domestic gas market. So we have this scenario where we've built infrastructure in place that enables people to be using gas both in the manufacturing as well as the household through creating that domestic demand many, many years ago. As we start to transition that, one of the examples is what does the domestic demand for hydrogen look like that would underpin an export market and invest and enable investments to be made into that that would then create this opportunity for us to build that into a world-scale export kind of industry? Those are the types of things that governments should really be putting their minds to whilst also recognising that they need to foster innovation through creating domestic markets for things like carbon offsets, for innovation around how to reduce emissions. So it's this concept of creating a domestic market that then subsequently can support uh, exports into the future. And I think that's that's something that in climate policy, we've kind of lost that view that every time we look to implement something in Australia that is a domestic policy, people kind of just look at it and immediately go, oh, that's just a cost to business. It's going to put us at a disadvantage globally rather than an advantage. Um, oh, right. So we're just looking at the, the micro rather than the macro impact that it can have. And that seems to be the case with a whole lot of climate issues and sustainability issues of people. I remember in the early days, people, you were always, always saying, you know, oh, you're going to put solar on the roof or, or something else, um, you know, or have timber or something. What's the payback period on that? But they yep. never asked that question about marble bench tops or, you know, luxury foyers, did they? Yeah. <laughs> it's never a question. So, you yeah, know, like they're sort of looking for short-term gain. Uh, you know, for some reason they ping the, um, they want the short-term, the, the you know, the number on the short-term returns for anything sustainable, but ignoring the bigger impacts, like we ignore the, the externalities of a lot of our industries, right? It's kind of having a, ignoring, you know, and what's coming along now is this complex systems thinking that people got to understand that we're looking bigger. So how do you get the message across? So you sort of, do you get involved in messaging about getting that message across to the domestic market to think bigger and to understand it's not just a cost, but it's going to have a value to the whole economy? And who picks up the differential between that? Yeah. So let me start with a little bit about what we're doing about getting companies themselves to understand and shift the narrative between a 
risk and downside impact discussion to an opportunity discussion. Um, and I think the two, the, the, what we did at EY is we've, we've established the, the Net Zero Centre and the Net Zero Centre has a group of capability in it that is very focused on the large emitters and the hard to abate sectors and how you can actually start to have a conversation around the disruptions that are likely to happen in the marketplace that will support this transition and a recognition that organisational strategy needs to change for these organisations to take advantage of these disruptions. Rooftop solar that you mentioned actually is a great example, Tina, of where, you know, the, the whole climate debate has completely shifted and disrupted mm. an entire marketplace, right? I so, know. It's so much valuable. It's so much more valuable than the, the savings on your energy bill, yeah. right? But, but if you think about the market itself and you looked at the traditional players that in the power generation sector prior to the kind of explosion of rooftop solar, you know, they were very focused on running um, large power generators, whether they be gas-fired, coal-fired, or, or some renewables as well, but very large assets and very much focused on the power generation construct. Governments then sort of said, we want to um, uh, support development of potentially rooftop solar, rooftop solar that will help you know, decentralise power generation and make a difference. All of the players that then subsequently flooded into Australia to provide rooftop solar were not your traditional large power generators and a whole this whole disruption occurred where the whole lot of new players actually started to enter the market in previously what have been almost impossible for them to break into because they weren't able to go and build a 1.2 billion dollar coal-fired power generation generator they were just that wasn't the nature of those businesses now interestingly all of those big power generators have now moved into the retail space and actually looked to engage in the rooftop solar um, space as well. But we saw a huge disruption in that in a very short period of time. And Australia's adoption of rooftop solar is world leading. It's it's amazing how quickly that's that's taken off. So, you know, we can see that's that's created this huge disruption. What's going to happen across all of the industries that have high emissions or are emissions intensive is that disruption is going to happen time and time and time again. So mm. an organisation, you kind of look at that and go, well, that's a risk to my business model for sure, so I need to look at it. But most businesses would look and say, well, if we get this right, disruption is a good thing and we can actually take advantage of it and actually may actually open up potential for greater market share, shifting, changing the way that we actually look at business. But in that scenario, if you just look at, well, how what's the returns on a development of a green hydrogen facility in Queensland? it's probably not going to stack up in today's carbon prices, in today's kind of marketplace. But at the same time, it may create this opportunity for you to capture capability, get first mover advantage and start to actually build that disruption and underpin that disruption that's likely to happen. Um, and there will be a whole lot of examples for this. You know, um, I really applaud an organisation like Ampol, for example, you know, traditionally a, a fuel producer and fuel distributor, we everyone's probably used an ampole pump at some stage in the last uh, couple of months at, to, to fill up their tank of petrol. They've really embraced the concept of electric vehicle rollout, what it means for them building a, an infrastructure that's going to be able to support that disruption in order for them to get ahead of that curve. Because otherwise, if they didn't, it's obviously an existential risk for them because the reality is in 15, 20 years' time of we're moving towards a 1.5-degree world, there will be no more internal combustion engines left in the world. Well, we hope so. <laughs> so what are the mechanics of getting that in, that disruption that happened in solar and that could happen in all these other industries? What are the actual, how does that look from a practical point of view again? <laughs> yeah, look, I wish I could give you one answer, Tina. If I could give you one answer, I'd probably win some sort of Nobel Prize for, for solving the world's climate problem. Well, the answer is that there are Australia, yeah, yeah. But the, the answer is there's lots of there's lots of different ways that those things get kicked off for lots of different industries in lof, lots of different con contexts. So, for example, if we look at the rooftop solar, the um, it was a c combination of government incentive and consumer demand, right? So there was right. better understanding within consumers, but at the same time there was government incentive. And so, therefore, the uh, the financials in relation to each of the particular households that went down this pathway looked pretty good. 
So feed-in tariffs were high, you know, government um, support for the capital up outlay in different states became quite high. And then there was, so c- consumers were actually keen to do it. So you saw, you saw that in both those cases, it was a, a mixture of the two. If you'd like to learn more about sustainability in the built environment, you can visit our news website, thefifthestate.com.au, where we bring you the latest news in the sector, run educational and networking events, have a jobs column, and offer a whole range of ebooks. That's www.thefifthestate.com.au. And our sister site, The Green List, is a curated directory of sustainable products and services. That's thegreenlist.com.au. In the electric yeah. vehicle space, it does seem to be even more consumer-driven. So um, I myself uh, bought myself a, haven't got it yet, uh, Tina, the supply chain issues as a result of COVID, which was brief, <laughs> but... But you know, I bought myself an electric vehicle when I was. Is it a Tesla? The, is it a it's Tesla? Not, it's not. It's <laughs> Boring old you... Volvo. Oh, you bought a Volvo. Volvo. Okay, I want yeah. to know that. Yes. But I was talking to uh, my Volvo dealer, and he was saying fifty percent of the vehicles he'd sold in the prior six months out of his dealership were the electric model. Oh wow, that's amazing. Fifty percent, right? Now, admittedly, that probably tells you something about Volvo drivers, but but um, you know the. The uptake They're good people, obviously. Yes, correct. Um, but the uptake, and we've got, a, again, EY's done a, a global study on EV uptake. The uptake of EVs in terms of the number of people saying that their next car will be electric. Yeah. Pushing 50% globally. Now, that's nuts. That transition is nuts. Yeah. That has had some government input, but in reality, that's a much more consumer-led thing. So I think the answer is, whereas... The potential growth of the hydrogen sector in Australia is unlikely to be consumer-led, Tina. That's going to be large yeah. organisations recognising that they need to transition their businesses over a long period of time and looking for opportunities to be part of that and actually looking to get ahead of the game and actually use some of this pent-up investment dollars that are capital dollars that are out there. But the government, as I said, needs to start to play its part in providing some yeah. supporting policy to, to get on board. Well, it's interesting that you've said, you know, you've actually noted it would take a decade for hydrogen to kick off. It's exactly what Saul Griffith said today, um, you know, um, that hydrogen is, um, you know, a long way to go to get the technology right. And if we go down that path entirely, especially with consumers, it will be a lost decade. Yeah, the, uh, so I, I haven't, I've got to be very careful here. I'll provide some context. I haven't actually listened to him so I wasn't there for for the discussion so no but there's a lot of skepticism it's not it's not just him but there's been quite yeah there's quite a lot of um, skepticism about it there's skepticism about the fact that the gas industry is interested in it because they say oh we'll put in 10% hydrogen um and of course because the particles are so tiny they escape they're fugitive um well we'll um we'll have to you know improve the gas infrastructure to, you yep. know, so that we can go a little bit renewable. And I've seen ads on TV saying, you know, gas is a renewable resource. And I'm going, oh, my God, you know, the spin merchants are out in force. Yeah. So, you know. Let, let me just let me just give a bit of context, though, to the, to the hydrogen discussion. So, because um, uh, I, so renewables is a, is a way in which we can obviously um, transition our energy sector. And, what we do recognise, and coming back to my point about the grid before, I said, Tina, we need the upgrade to the grid that enables us to actually make the transition that's necessary. But what we also need in that process is storage. So the problem with electricity is it's the most efficient way of using energy. We, we use it all everywhere. It's very efficient. But it, it's, you, you, use it when, you, know, you need to use it when it's made if, if without storage, right? So if we then identify an knowledge that we need storage in order to make the grid operate effectively the options for storage there's only four there's four options for storage you have battery storage you have um water storage so pumped hydro you have air compression which is um a form of storage and then you have chemical storage so battery storage is particularly useful if you're looking to transition electricity from one time period to another time period so i.e 
if you're making salt you're making solar electricity during the day you put it into a battery and you can use it again at night you can use it in the same grid that you've generated the power to the same grid that you're then seeking to execute on very good for transferring electricity from one time period to another pumped hydro very similar and and very ge geographically located again so again it needs to be where the grid is the pumped hydro needs to be where the grid is it's about transferring from one time period to another the challenge with pumped hydro is obviously you need the water and you need the source um, and so there's mm. probably less application for it which is why batteries are a bit more universal um Air compression as a storage is just not really scalable um, in terms of the, site, the scale of what we need it for can be used in very bespoke operations. So the last one, which we talk about chemical storage, chemical storage is particularly useful when you're trying to move electricity from one geographic location to another geographic location. Mm. It is quite clearly not efficient to use electricity to generate hydrogen, to then burn hydrogen, to generate electricity again. But the reason mm. you have to do that is because you're taking electricity or energy from one geographic location to another, which is why hydrogen is considered to be all about export. So if you oh. ask me, should we build a hydrogen industry in Australia specifically to manage our own grid, I would say it's not a particularly efficient process. Okay. But what you're trying to do is underpin the building, again, of an export scalable, world scalable export market. And there are lots of countries around the world that don't have the natural resource advantage from the context of renewables okay. that we have. And therefore, the hydrogen, whether it's hydrogen, ammonia, whatever it is, whatever chemical storage process that you're deploying is necessary in order for a whole range of countries to make the transition that's necessary. Mm. And again, this is this global view rather than our own hip pocket or domestic concerns. Which coming back to abroad. that point, Tina, we all know the one thing that is universally understood about climate change and the issues associated with greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere, one tonne of greenhouse gas emitted in Australia is exactly the same for us and for everybody else as a ton of greenhouse gas emission emitted in New Zealand, in Qatar, in Germany, in Antarctica. It's the same everywhere. So I think that's a really important point that we have a part to play in Australia that creates an export market for us in terms of exporting effectively clean energy and playing our part because solving the problems of Malaysia, of Japan, and of Europe are just as important to us in terms of the climate debate as solving the problems here in Australia. It's solving our own problems at the same time, that unifying concept. Isn't that amazing? That's fantastic. So um, uh, another issue that I wanted to to bring up, um, Matt, was the, um, you know, that we've got some, a very strong mechanism has just been implemented in Australia. We've got a 43% um, emissions reductions target based on 2005, I think, by 2030. And that's really powerful. And I've been speaking to other people in the industry recently in preparation for one of our events. Um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, they're saying that this is, and I think you mentioned it as well, this is, it hasn't even started to be implemented or work its way through the industry. Now, we're primarily based around the built environment, although we look at the context um, of policy and everything else around the built environment from time to time. Um, but, you know, in terms of the built environment and other sectors, this is an interesting um, sort of factor that has, you know, been implemented. What is the likely way that it's going to feed its way through the economy in all the different sectors, having a view to um, the built environment and also I think you mentioned EYS is focused very strongly on the biggest emitters, which is obviously important as well. Yeah. So step number one actually in the process will be uh, the safeguard mechanism and the changes that are currently being proposed by government to the safeguard mechanism. Um, Can you so, explain that for us, for we lay people? <laughs> sure. So the safeguard mechanism has been in place for some time and basically what it was was um, the government set um, production emissions intensity kind of trajectories for particular businesses that they needed to stay below um, over a period of time and they needed to stay below that trajectory. Otherwise, they would get effectively penalised. So they would have to pay or, or purchase offsets to, to um, get underneath those, those trajectories. The reality of those trajectories were they were established not really, not to 
result in these businesses significantly reducing their emissions, i.e. they weren't particularly aggressive reduction trajectories. And so therefore, there probably wasn't, it probably didn't drive a lot of um, emissions reductions within businesses. It stopped the increase, so it stopped them going up, but it, it didn't necessarily bring down or make them more efficient. What the government has currently got a consultation paper out in terms of asking for input or, or response to is to take that scheme and make it more aggressive in the requirements on businesses to reduce emissions over a period of time and therefore mm. effectively play the role that the businesses that, that are captured by the safeguard mechanism in achieving the 43% reduction that you described. Now, the companies that would be captured by the safeguard mechanism as it's currently proposed, I think the number is somewhere, Tina, about 28% of Australia's emissions. So it's significant in terms of the it is the big emitters um, and they do take up a significant share of our existing emissions and therefore we need them to be part of the solution, otherwise we won't achieve the 43%. If you then add power generators, which are not included in the scheme but have their own requirements, then you know we're starting to get up to a significant proportion over 60% of our emissions. So I think the, the safeguard mechanism that I've described is, is the first step the government is starting to, to give an indication that they're looking for lots of businesses to play their role in achieving the emissions reductions. And it's a great first step, I think, in, in the government giving an idea about how they're gonna start to achieve that 43% reduction. But the sooner we can get the full picture of which sectors are going to play which role in achieving the 43% reduction, the better it is for investors to start to make decisions. And so that's kind of the ask of government from me is get on with telling us how you're going to achieve the 43% so that we can we can then unleash the capital that's necessary to get there. Mm. Do you have some insights into that process? Are they sort of engaging with the industry or, you know, how does that work out? Is it actually underway now? Yeah, so the, the engagement with industry on the safeguard specifically, Tina, is absolutely happening now. As I mentioned, the consultation paper has been released. The government yeah. have got some stakeholder engagement programs in place to talk to the businesses and they are engaging on that. Having said that, in terms of, you know, what engaging on the whole program um, of what the 43% make up, I'm sure the government would suggest that they are engaging with people. But, you know, it does tend to be um, sector by sector or industry by industry in terms of what they're proposing. Um, and I do think there needs to be a little bit more probably ambition associated with that. But, you know, as you would know, and I'm sure your listeners will remember, there is an awful lot of politics embedded in climate policy, and there has been for some time. Um, and so we're trying to unpick that. Now, whether there's ambition within the existing government to do that kind of in their first term um, being put back into power or whether they're likely to hold it off to the second term. Again, you know, my ask of government is please don't wait. Let's get on with it. The quicker we go on with now it, you're, it's going to be. Now you're frightening me. <laughs> this talk about not doing anything in the first term, we just don't have the time, do we? And I'm glad you said that. Um, that's a real concern. And I really hate to think that the politics is going to slow down the processes um, that's not good. But you're thinking all the indicators are pointing that way, are you? Um, I've got to be a little bit, you know, uh, I, no, they you are all indicating that. So, you know, okay. I am pleased that the safeguard <laughs> has moved very quickly and I think that's okay. a place to start. Um, I, I guess my my point is that they, they're definitely not sitting on their hands for sure um, and, they're, and they're, they're working through that. The, the question is just, you know, and this is not just for the government, it's for all of the parties in government, um, it's the it's the Greens as well. It's the Teals. It's all of the all of the parties in government. Tina, you know we need to be ambitious here, and it's as much an economic issue as it is about a, an environmental issue. Um, so you know if we don't resolve these issues alongside at least at least keeping up with our com country competitors as opposed to leading them then you know we're going to we're going to find ourselves behind the eight ball in terms of all sorts okay. of industry developments. Okay, I see that as the positive, but please I'm going to ask you a hard question. What are the negatives here? What's actually holding back progress? And I I want you to be as specific as you possibly can here. Sure. Because we ne we need to understand this. 
it's it's a recognition that there is a cost that needs to be paid. So um, I, I think we need to be very open about that, Tina, um, mm. and I think we need to accept it. This view that somehow that there is no cost of transition, I think is there, there are too many other things that show that there will, will be a cost. If we think about renewable energy in and of itself, once the, the market is in place and it is operating, it will be, of course, cheaper because the sun is mm. free, right? No, mm. There's no mm. mining requirements. There's no transport requirements. The, you know, all of the things that if this view that somehow hydrocarbons is very efficient is not really that true. Having said that, there's an awful lot of sunk capital that's already um, built into um, our existing infrastructure. So there's an awful lot of sunk capital that means that it is cheaper to continue to do something than scrap it and start again. Right? Okay. So the whole scrap it and start again is going to cost. Once we've paid that cost, we'll then reap the benefits of that into the future. So I think part of the being very specific about the argument, I think, you know, um, and as much as I love Canon Brooks's ambition and the push that he's saying, the view that somehow in the short term, electricity prices for households is going to be less because we move to renewables, you know, I, I just, I think that's not a great message to be having into the marketplace because there is a cost to transition because there has been an awful lot of investment to get us to where we've got to. And that's the way capital works, right? It looks at, you know, where do I deploy my capital in a way that's going to give me immediate return on a particular outcome rather than this view that once all of the investment's made and the whole thing has transitioned, is this going to be better for me? And I think that's, that's, that's a really yeah. important point. That, that's really interesting um, because, you know, that, that transition that capital investment, um, you're actually saying that on one hand, the people who've invested that capital, private companies or public companies, I should say, but, you know, private enterprise companies uh, um, have to bear the cost of winding down coal state, coal-fired power stations, et cetera, um, and the gas companies have got to bite the bullet there with what they're doing. Um, and then you've got to have an investment in the new technology, um, right, and that money you're saying it's got to come from private capital as well, or is is that a role for the government to produce a new infrastructure in a big way? And just in view of the fact that, you know, I just read this morning in the financial papers that, you know, anyone that's, what was that phrasing? Anyone that's saying that we've got a trillion dollar debt in Australia is blowing smoke because that debt is now half of what it was thanks to the commodity boom, et cetera, and a few other factors. So, you know, and everyone's really worried that the government's going to um, spend that additional money in the upcoming budget on inflationary um you know things and they're saying don't do it because you know we'll, we'll you know but can it can it invest in this infrastructure um i mean here we are sort of talking about economics and inflation and interest rates aren't we and it's kind of all part of the same thing so i mean how do we unpack all that where's the money going to come from and who are the main impediments because they're all people <laughs> to, yep. to, to the transition yeah yeah so again the status quo, once we have achieved the transition, I think we revert back to an environment where we are actually more economically efficient because we are using energy in a way that is more efficient. So let me start with that point is that the end point yeah. is a positive, right? Yeah. The transition does cost money. And who pays for that? The capital comes from private sector. No problem there, Tina. And the, there's plenty of capital to be deployed here. I hear um, that a lot. They're, yeah, they're ready, exactly. They're ready for it, right? Hmm. But at the same time, if you've got a view that somehow you're going to shut down and get rid of early a whole lot of sunk capital for businesses that were expecting to get returns from those assets like coal-fired assets or gas-fired assets and that they're then going to shift to renewables where that capital will be seeking to get a return to suggest that that's not going to cost you anything, I guess, is that is the hard part. So the, the cost associated with that can come from two ways, right? Governments can just pay for it, Right comes no. out of the government coffers and they can just pay for it. Second, all of us can pay for it, which is we pay more for our electricity or our energy use, right? So those are the two options. E either that way, work. that's us, by the way, isn't it? Correct, correct. <laughs> if the government pays, it's we're paying it's for it. It's still we're the people, that's right. 
if we consume more electricity or energy, then we pay through electricity or consumption. For me personally, I'll tell you what I'd prefer, right? I like a variable tax, right? Which is, therefore, if I don't want to pay the tax, I use a less, yes, less electricity and I don't pay the tax and the world benefits and I benefit. That's a beautiful Lovely. world, right? As yeah. opposed to the government pays and I'm subsidizing everyone else as to whether they're reducing their electricity use or not, right? So, okay. you know, that's a very philosophical point, Tenor, and, and I'm sure there's lots of people that will argue <laughs> against me on that. But, you know, and there's lots of issues associated with things like just transition and making sure that the right parts of the community and society are supported in that transition and they need to be. Um, much more smarter minds than than me, Tina, will come up with solutions for that. But But ultimately, I think this concept of the fact that, you know, we are going to refocus costs, payments of costs into those things that generate greenhouse gas emissions is a good thing. Um, and therefore, the scarce resource for us is not pollution and therefore you should pay for, pay for it when you pollute. The, my personal discussion would be this whole concept of a budget is what we want, right? So yeah. if you get granted 100 tonnes a year that you're allowed to emit, if you want to drive a great big truck, you know, F-150 truck or whatever, and use up your budget there, go for your life. If and you live in use a treehouse in, in every other way. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to pay me to drive an F-150 while I drive my little Corolla electric vehicle, I'm also fine with that. You can give me the money and I'll let you take my, my, uh, my emissions, right? So these are all the choices that I think consumers need to make. So I think there is needs to be a good discussion about the fact that the transition itself will cost us money, but it will actually benefit us in the long term and benefit those that come after us in the long term. Um, and it will actually, like if you actually look at the potential downside impacts of this, you know, there's not a lot of evidence that suggests that that economies will crumble. You know, this whole view that the, the economy was going to fall over under the CPRS. The total revenue raised under the CPRS, Tina, was going to be somewhere in the realm of 12 to $15 billion. In the year the CPRS was proposed, BHP alone made a profit of $12 billion. So oh the scale of it is insignificant, right? And I remember a big headline on the Herald Sun saying electricity prices to rise, you know, extra cost of 3 bucks 50 a week on energy prices. $3.50, you know? <laughs> you know, like, and so, yeah. you know, I think, I think the concepts of, and, and that's where these types of discussions are really good because it reminding people about what it is that we're talking about. Let's, let's take an example. I, I talked about the grid. For me, we should find a way to spend $150 billion more on our grid, right? Straight away. We spent $50 yeah. billion on the NBN, Right. So $150 billion of our you know, money should be found on the grid. Now, that sounds like an astronomically huge number. But in the scheme of things of what we're talking about here, you know, it's, it's not much money. And then if you look at other countries that have made the transition, so if we think about the 70s um, oil shock, you know, places like Scandinavia, Denmark and so on moved to kind of 20% renewables pretty much overnight. And it's not like Denmark's a bad place to live. No, I just, they did well. <laughs> so I just think that this concept of the downside impact implications across an economy are potentially overblown and we need to target those that need good just transition, so those, sec those parts of the world which are going to be impacted, we need to help those communities and enable them to make the transition as well. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 and it's um, you know, it's just about I think identifying you know who's putting up the biggest fight for this because you mentioned politics that you know this is the economics of it, but who's got the loudest voice in sort of you know actually convincing the government not to move this in this term? I'm actually question. actively out there. It's a good, <laughs> it, it is a really good question. I actually. Uh, this is going to be, I'm sure you'll be very disappointed with this answer. I actually don't <laughs> think that there are any players that, that are saying it. It is this general kind of malaise of, you know, we have to have every solution nailed down. You know, like even today when you talked about the fact that there was real pushback on the development of this, the hydrogen sector in Australia, you know, like, or that, 
we need, you know, renewables aren't, the grid's not going to be able to handle renewables. We can't, you know, we'll never get to baseload renewables that will work for us. Or Well, they've said we that solar power was never going to work. possibly accept yeah. nuclear. You know, like all of these points, there's just someone in the community that has a problem with something in relation to it. And it just, you end up with this general malaise of not doing anything. It's like the offsets debate, Tina. Everyone's saying how bad offsets are. Like at EY, right, we purchase offsets to make us carbon negative. And the projects we invest in are reforestation projects in South America, you know, that that create community engagement. Like, okay, maybe mm. we get to say it as a reputational outcome, Tina, but who on earth can think that that's a bad thing? You know, like... Well, it's, as long as they're going to the right place. I mean, there was a bit of a disaster with one of them going to um, a whole set, going yeah, to a um, But my a point being, that... if you think of all of the good that's been done through carbon markets, the True. CM the yeah. offset program, the engagement that it's created within yeah, businesses, yeah. and there's a couple of projects that we shouldn't invest in. Like, Yeah, I know. There's always going to be a failure. And I think it's really unfair the way people sort of, you know, dump down a new technology if it fails. I think all new things fail in their first iteration. It's like I know that from buildings, you know, and the first, um, you know, the first green six-star green stars want to to have black water recycling. Well, it yeah. took a couple of those buildings to realise, no, it doesn't actually work. And people get so angry about that. And I think, come on, give them a break. Nobody knew this before. Someone's got to, you know, have be brave enough to take the first step. And, you know, CH2 in Melbourne, it was funded by City of Melbourne, but it was freaking brilliant in the, in the oh, it was cut that out. It was it was really wonderful because it, it actually um, experimented with a whole lot of new technologies that other people could work with. Some of them work. And some of them didn't work, but people could learn from it. And I think that's what you're getting at here, that we've got to try Absolutely. a whole lot of different things. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Um, so, you know, we've got all these, um, you know, a whole sort of, uh, I suppose, um, a sandpit of ideas to play with and to, to get where we want to go. I'm really concerned about um, the government not wanting um, or feeling, you know, that general malaise of not wanting to do something in the first term. I mean, I think they they should take their their guiding light from the Whitlam government that thought we've got to move as fast as possible because they probably knew that we're going to last long. Um, but, you know, um, this, this is a real concern and I'm wondering whether that's a hangover from the, you know, the decade, the lost decade, <laughs> nine years of um, a government that was actively against sustainability and climate action, which is a real concern. And I'm wondering, are those forces completely gone now or is it just a lingering malaise? Or do we actually, do you perceive at your high end of the world, <laughs> of the economy, that there's still active forces actively opposed to transition? I think I think, I think, think we've at least moved away from this view that we we don't have a problem. I mentioned that at the start, Tina. Maybe this is a good way you to did. bring it back full circle. but. I think yeah. we have moved away from this view that we don't have a problem. And I um, so I think that's a great start um, on both sides of government, if I'm honest. I'm sure that there are yeah. some voices that suggest oh, that it's not an issue, but but of course we've you know, just overall, written an article. Yeah, you know, we've just written an article about the Victorian looming election and the you know the LNP there is really getting behind sustainability. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, no question. And so I think I think there's a recognition now that we don't we, not and that's not just in politics, but actually across the across society, there is a recognition. We okay, that's not really surprising given all of us are actually now. I'm in Melbourne today, and we we haven't borne the brunt at all in Melbourne, but we're starting to get it now. You know that that is in an environment where the real effects of climate change are biting, and they're happening mm -hmm. right now. And there is acknowledgement that 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 has ge genuinely shifted the mindset of people for 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 action. Um, and I often, I often talk about this, Tina. You know, not I definitely as we come to the end of this, I don't want to end on a on a negative note. But you know, we're talking 1.5 degrees is the goal that we're trying to achieve here. Many people think that we can't ever actually achieve that. So that's like the nirvana if we can achieve 1.5, and that's actually way worse than what we've got today in terms of the physical impacts of climate change. So the no. best possible outcome is way worse than what, what we've got today. So I think there's a recognition that we've got that challenge. The bit that I think the malaise occurs and the challenge to that, you know, again, coming back to that point about pushing government to, to be aggressive here, is that point about I need to make sure that I've got it 100% right because I can't afford yeah. any kind of policy failure in my first term. Um, 
Okay. And, you know, your point about the uh, the offsets, I think, was a good one. Your challenge to me on that, which I was then able to say, well, yeah, but there's one issue, you know, like that's exactly what we've got to stop here, right? So, yeah, you know, yeah. If, if the view is that, this, you know, the safeguard as a policy mechanism, they've gone to get consultation, they'll land on something in relation to that. If someone picks it up and starts to say, well, this is fundamentally flawed because, you know, of whatever reason that, you know, it, it will create the problem that will be exacerbated and we'll take that forward. So it's not the macro debate that's happening now because that's that's gone. That was previous governments. The bit now that we've got to be conscious of is not getting too hung up on all of the ins and outs of the market. And getting it right, the, the perfect being the enemy of the good. Now to close off, Matt, I'd, be, I'd like to sort of um, – to um, ask you about technology because, um, yep. you know, there's a lot of really clever people in the world all working towards solutions here. How do you feel about the technologies? Do we, um, you know, do we rely on those or is it finance is going to give us a solution or is it a mix of things? But perhaps if you could also look at technology, you know, they're really exciting ideas coming through the pipeline that you're positive about. Yeah. Um, so um, the one thing I will say um, we often hear this view as technology is not there yet. We don't have the technologies that's going to enable us to go to net zero. That is 100% incorrect. We have all of the technologies we need to be net zero in the world today, but they're just not commercial. So we know how to generate and do the work that we need to do across the board to be net zero. But let me just pause on that net because we do have sequestration um uh, capabilities and technologies uh, that would enable us to at least emit some greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere and continue to do so. So not, we don't necessarily need technology that enables us to have exactly zero emissions, but our net emissions in terms of being net zero, we have all of the technologies available to us at the scales that we subsequently need them to be, but they're just not commercial. And so, and we don't necessarily have the infrastructure in place to be able to get them to be deployed in every part of the world at the moment. But that again itself, we have the technologies to deploy them elsewhere. We just don't have the commercial realities of getting them there. So when you come back, is it about finance that's going to solve the problem? Um, it is a little bit, yes, but it's not necessarily finance alone because in order to be able to deliver that capital in the right ways, you need the right incentives. So we need the right policy settings. But from a purely physical perspective, could you tomorrow have Australia and put a boundary around Australia and actually enable it to be get to net zero if you could wave a wand and suddenly a whole lot of construction people apply, um, turn up from somewhere and, and can deliver on it, then uh, we have the technology in place to be able to, to deliver the goals that we're talking about. Which of those technologies will win the commercial race? is extremely open. Is it going to be green hydrogen? Is it going to be green ammonia? Is it going to be electric vehicles? Is it going to be all of these technologies? Now, the answer is yes, probably all of the above or many of the above, but maybe not all of them. Some of them will fall over. Is carbon capture and storage going to be better than direct air capture, which is going to be better than nuclear, which is going to be better than solar with batteries? Who knows, right? The market will sort that out but we need the incentives, but the technologies are there. That's interesting. So in your, um, you know, to close off, what is your ideal commercial world that will deliver what we need here to make those those um, technologies commercially viable? There's a great graph that the Carbon Tracker has, Tina, and if you any of your people want to jump on online and have a look what this looks like, the Carbon Tracker is a great little website. It gives you a sense of all of the policies around the world that have been set, commitments made by governments, pledges and so on, and where do all of those take us in this journey towards a 1.5 degree world? And what you can see is the graph that shows the trajectory of emissions. And you can see that under stated policies around the world and pledges and commitments, we're not where we need to be in order to achieve 1.5 degrees. So what needs to happen first is all of the governments around the world need to give the investment community the confidence that carbon is going to be priced in an appropriate level such that it will unleash these technologies and make them commercial. And then at the same time, the innovations and the investments that will then trigger that certainty that's given will start to see the costs of these things completely come down over time. We've seen it time and time again. This is not something, I'm not telling you something that's new as a new thing that's going to happen, 
When you solar mm-hmm. is the perfect example, you think about yep. how much solar cost. Computing power is a perfect yep. example, you know, like Moore's law and all that sort of stuff. So this is not something that I've come up with. That's happened well and truly many times before. It's just nice. that we need those incentives in place and that's what needs to happen. We need to see those graphs come down, okay. actually be able to say that stated policies around the world are going to deliver that 1.5 degrees. That's brilliant. And what a wonderful closing note. It's all back to the government now. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> we've, we've all well, got back to us. Some pressure. Back, back to, to us to as us. well, Tina. Okay. We've got to put the governments in place that are going to make the changes that are necessary. So Exactly. Yeah. That's a really good point. Thank you so much, Matt. I really enjoyed that. No Thank worries, you. Tina. Thanks for, thanks for the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Fifth Estates podcast, How to Build a Better World. That was Managing Editor, Tina Perinotto. Production is done by myself, Rosemary Petrus, journalist at the Fifth Estate and the Green List, and Poppy Johnson. If you'd like to learn more about sustainability in the built environment, you can visit our news website, thefifthestate.com.au, where we bring you the latest news in the sector, run educational and networking events, have a jobs column, and offer a whole range of ebooks. That's www.thefifthestate.com.au. And our sister site, The Green List, is a curated directory of sustainable products and services. That's thegreenlist.com.au.